Well, you see, retirement hasn't changed my performance on titles, right? Watching your weight. I ought to sink down when I say that. I know some wag is out there saying, hey, partner, physician, heal thyself. And I would say to that, I am watching it. <laughs> but it's W-A-I-T that we're focusing on because that is, uh, that is the subject of the text. All of us have had a lot of time waiting. In fact, wouldn't it be interesting to count up all the hours in our lives that have been spent waiting for something? When I was a teenager, I couldn't wait to drive <clears throat> legally. <laughs> I waited a long time for that, and it was uh, it seemed like it would never come. But some of us uh, wait... For a baby to be born, nine months, we get to wait for that. Or we get to wait to see the doctor. That seems to be longer and longer these days. Or you can go to the government health care website and you can wait a long time for that. In fact, I think some people are still waiting for that. Or you can get frustrated, as I do, just waiting for a traffic light. And I have to tell you how impatient I am. I actually get frustrated with a slow computer. If I have to wait two seconds for something when my brother over there, Hampton probably, is doing it on his Mac in a half a second. I hate to wait. We spend a lot of time doing it. When you think about the book of Hebrews, and in particular Hebrews chapter 11, the word that usually comes to mind is the word faith, right? But there's another word that you could apply that really fits Hebrews chapter 11, and that's the word wait. Because Hebrews 11 is about people who waited for the promised blessings. Remember in verses 13 through 16, the writer of the Hebrews says, all these Old Testament saints died in faith, I'm paraphrasing now, waiting for the promise to come. They died waiting all their lives. They waited for the promised blessings. And he says what they came to realize is those blessings were heavenly blessings, not earthly blessings. So they're still waiting. The end of, the, of chapter 11 of Hebrews says, God purposed that they would wait until we came along and joined into those blessings with them. I can see those Old Testament saints saying, hurry it up. Tired of waiting. You know, in the, in the Psalms, you know what one of the, the common expressions is there? Two words. How long? How long, the psalmist keeps saying. How long do I have to wait, God, for you to act? Well, Hebrews chapter 11 is really the story of how people behaved, people of faith behaved, while they were waiting. And that is really the topic of our text, how to behave as a Christian while you wait for the promised return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the reason for my title. Now, you have to understand this particular parable in the context of all of the parables. And to back away from that, you have to understand it in the light of the Olivet Discourse. Remember that our Lord Jesus Christ is near the time of his death. And he has come to Jerusalem and, and they are overlooking the city. 
in Matthew chapter 24, the disciples are saying, Oh man, Lord, that's so cool. And Jesus says, in effect, don't get too attached, guys. There won't be one stone left upon another. And that brings up the subject then of the Lord's return. Or, in their minds, the subject of the establishment of the kingdom. And so they say, privately, isn't that interesting? Privately, they say to Jesus, give us the inside word. What is it that is the indicator that your kingdom is about to come about? And what Jesus is going to say to them is, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you exactly what the time is or what the sign is. I will give you some general ideas. And that's where he plays out this whole matter of the Olivet Discourse. And I see it in terms of three phases. The first phase is it's going to get really rough out there. It's going to get rough in terms of wars and rumors of wars. If you've got this mental checklist, I'd go click. We're, we're there. And uh, we're doing well on that one, are we not? Wars and rumors of wars. But then he talks about not being frightened by all of that. It is distressing, isn't it? To see what's taking place, to get all worked up. Jesus says, don't be frightened or alarmed by all of that. But then it gets worse. <laughs> it reminds me of those commercials on TV. But wait, there's more. You thought it was bad to have wars and rumors of wars? Now it's going to get personal, he says. There's going to be tribulation, martyrdom, persecution, deception, betrayal, and lawlessness. Now you have people turning on one another. Jesus says those days are not the indication that the last time has come upon us. Rather, these are indications that it's drawing nearer. So he says the gospel must be proclaimed to all the world first. And then the kingdom can come. So whoever endures to the end, he says, will be saved. So in that first word, uh, first phase, I have this key word, endure. When you come to the second phase, it's the abomination of desolation. And the key word there is escape. Run for your lives, is really what he says. And don't hesitate to do so. This is very interesting because yesterday... I received a letter of, of uh, information and warning from the Evangelical Fellowship of India. And the letter was saying that there was a church in India that the radical Hindus had taken over, had forced a certain number of people to convert, to deny their faith, to profess Hinduism as their faith. They desecrated the cross in some manner. And they offered a heathen Hindu sacrifice in the church. And I thought to myself, isn't that just a warm-up for what is going to take place at the abomination of desolation? And he says there will be false prophets that will come along at that point in time. The worse things get, the more eager we are to get out of the circumstances. And that's when the false teachers come along and say, do I have a deal for you? And he says, beware, beware of all of that. The third phase is the second coming itself. He says, after these things related to the tribulation, in fact, he says, immediately after, there's going to be this cosmic chaos that's going to take place, all of these signs. And that's part of why he's telling us, 
When somebody says, oh, he's over here, or he's out there, or he's in here, don't pay attention. He says, everybody's going to know it. When Jesus comes again, everybody's going to know it, because he's going to announce it cosmically. He's going to make it clear. And so he says, that's when he comes, and that's when he rescues his saints. My key word for that is enjoy. What a wonderful time that will be for believers to end all of the difficulties that wait for us. Here's what I see as the main point of all of this. And I think we really need to keep this at camel view rather than gnat view. We really need to see the big picture. Jesus is not giving a neat laid out scheme for the disciples to check off every little piece so they know exactly where they are. The whole point is, he's not coming as soon as they think. I think I would hasten to say, he's not coming as soon as we wish. His coming has been delayed 2,000 years, and he's still not here yet. But the disciples expected that that was going to be immediate. Remember in Acts chapter 1? They say to Jesus, is it now that the kingdom is going to be established? No way. And so Jesus is saying to them, I'm not telling you precisely when it will happen. Yes, you will know the season. That's the parable of the fig tree. When you see the leaves on the fig tree, you know what season it is. When you see these events that I've described, you'll know it's the season. You won't know the day or the year. You will know the time is drawing near. So the whole point is... It's going to take more time and there is going to be a delay. If I had one big word that I think I would hang out there, especially for Christians today, it would be that word delay or the word wait. And I would say Jesus is really focusing on what it means for Christians to live at a time when we are waiting for the second coming of our Lord. That's what all of this is about. And therefore, I see the parables as coming along as an explanation, as a sort of underscoring of what he has said in the Olivet Discourse, and now he's playing out what it means and how it should be applied. I should say this about the parables. I used to say the parables had two uses, and now I say they have three. One of the uses of the parables is to conceal. That runs contrary to what a lot of people say about parables. But it's clear in Matthew chapter 13 where people have just said it's by the prince of demons. It's by Beelzebul that Jesus operates and does these miracles. And Jesus says to that group of religious leaders, you've crossed the line. Jesus drew a red line and he really holds to it. He said, you have crossed the line. When you say of the Holy Spirit, the one who convicts of sin, who regenerates, when you say that his work is the devil's work, it's over for you. And so when Jesus begins to talk about the kingdom in parables in Matthew 13, and the disciples ask him, what are you doing? He says, I'm concealing the truth. These folks are now under judgment, and I am not going to reveal the way of salvation because they have already rejected me and they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, concealing it. Here's the interesting part. When you get to the end of the Gospels, Jesus uses parables again to conceal the truth, 
but he conceals it now, not from his enemies, but from the disciples. So he tells the story about the owner of the vineyard, and he lets it out when he goes on his trip. He lets it out to tenants, and when he comes back, you remember the tenants are saying, Hey, we could have this field. So they beat all the, the, the messengers of the, of the landowner, and finally they say, if we kill the son, the land will be ours. And when that thing is over, remember Jesus says, what do you think he ought to do? Well, they knew. And it says the enemies of Jesus understood exactly what he was saying. And that's what intensified their efforts to put Jesus to death. The beauty of it is that the disciples were clueless. I mean, can you see Peter sharpening up that sword, ready to lop off another ear? But they didn't get it because it wasn't time for them to understand. Then there is this third spot, and that is where parables are really given as a way to illustrate the truth, to underscore the truth, and to bring about uh, the application as we should understand it and, and apply it in our lives. So that's where we are with the parables. Notice, by the way, when you come to the parables, there are believers and unbelievers. There are not grades like, you know, 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. There's not that kind of differentiation. There are just believers and unbelievers. So when you come to the parable of the talents, Jesus deals exactly the same way with a two-talent man as he does with a five-talent man. Because each has acted faithfully with that which God has given, the master has given. It's the third slave who has weeping and gnashing of teeth and outer darkness. Five virgins. Every one of the parables ends up with this distinction between believers and unbelievers. So the parable of the fig tree is basically saying... You may know the season. You may not know the day or the hour, but you can know the season. And the season, I think, is declared by what Jesus has described in the Olivet Discourse. Then you come to the next three parables, all of which are focusing on being caught unawares, as it were, to underscore the, the, the liability, the risk that's incurred when one does not know something is coming. Now, this focuses on the unbelievers much more than it does on believers. You look at Noah and the ark. Well, Noah knows that the flood is coming, at least theoretically, because God told him it was. He's been spending a long time building a boat. No surprise for him. But the text says the people were surprised. Now, somebody may say, well, how could they be surprised when they see a boat? Because they were blind to the reality of judgment, just as people are today. Then there's the story about the two people who are working in the field or elsewhere. One's taken, one is left behind. There again, they're going about the routine things of life, just like people in Noah's day. And they are caught unaware by the taking away. It does not register with them until it is too late. And then there's, of course, the the homeowner who wishes he had known the time of the burglary because then he could have prevented it. Not knowing is not a good thing when you're talking in the general sense of not having an awareness that there's something near at hand that we need to take into our attention. And that I would say in this, ignorance is not bliss. Ignorance about the return of our Lord Jesus Christ is not 
bliss. Okay, now I want you to notice, uh, too, that Jesus says something that I think we really need to note. He says, I'm going to come at a time when you don't expect. He's not just saying, I think, it catches you by surprise. I think he is saying, you really think he won't come at the time that he comes. People are actually saying, this is, you know, whatever they're, they're going, is going through their head, they're saying to themselves, it isn't now. So Jesus' return really comes at a time when no one is looking for, as I understand it. Okay, then we've got the next uh, three parables, which are really talking to us about what you do during the delay. There is going to be a wait. Jesus has made that very clear. And we are to be alert, we are to be watchful, we are to be active. So what are we to be doing while we wait? You have the wise and the wicked servants in verses 45 through 51 of of chapter 24. Remember the wise servant is the one who is found doing what his master Desires. Actually, in the text, it says, who will be the one who, who is, will feed those, remember, at their table at the proper time? The one who the master finds so doing when he returns. Now, I'm not saying that there is no dinner table in heaven. I think there is. I'm not saying there is no banquet. I'm not saying there are not waiters, <laughs> so to speak, in heaven. But I think he's not just talking about preparing and serving food. I think what he's saying is, if the task in heaven were just to be summarized by the preparing of a meal, then what do you think Jesus would want us to be doing when he comes? I think it's safe to say he'd like to find us in the kitchen. Isn't not? Doesn't that make sense? We ought to be doing now... What kingdom activity is going to be in the future? We ought to be warming up, practicing, rehearsing for those things. And I think it has a lot more to do with other things than merely food, even though food may be, so to speak, on the intellectual table. Okay, the wise and the wicked servant. So the wise servant is at work doing master business. The foolish, uh, wicked slave is the one who says, oh, we got all kinds of time. So he's out self-indulging himself. He's not feeding others. He's obviously feeding himself and uh, not only food but drink. And then he's abusing his fellow slaves. Not what I would call kingdom work. And then you have the ten virgins. Five of them have prepared for a time, a possible time of delay. Now, it's clear that the, the all ten virgins sleep when the, when the uh, bridegroom is late or delayed in coming, right? But the difference between the five wise virgins and the five foolish ones is the wise virgins have prepared themselves for the possibility of delay. They've mentally wrapped their arms around that. The foolish virgins have not. And then we come to the parable of the talents, our text, and it's basically saying we need to make a profit. We need to make use, to take advantage of the delay, to make a profit for the king. And that, of course, is the question for us. How do we do that? Now, I want you to notice, 
and I especially want to do this after Phil gave his presentation. Final judgment is uh, given in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, the last part of chapter 25. It talks about the return of the Lord, and it talks about the judgment. And it says that there are going to be sheep and goats. How do we know the difference between sheep and goats? Now, we would say, well, ultimately, you know it on the basis of their profession, their trust in Jesus Christ, right? But he lists some of the evidences of those who are believers as opposed to evidences of those who are not. I think that's a good overview of the kind of things that believers ought to be doing. We ought to be doing the things which manifest the compassion of our Lord to those at their point of need. When people are hungry, you feed them. When they're sick, you you visit them and so on. But here's the one I wanted to point out for Phil. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Is that not what that text says? And just to push it one notch further, when he talks about those who fall under condemnation, what does he say? I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. So I'm going to say this. Phil didn't pay me to do this, but he'll, I'll, I'll make him pay he'll, big time later. <laughs> ISI is one of the profit centers of this church. One of the profit centers. If we are to make a profit for the king, let us not ask ourselves whether that activity is profitable or not. Jesus himself has specifically said it is. And that ought to be something to ponder. Okay, we finally get to the parable of the talents. Here's the master who is going away on a trip. It turns out it's a rather long trip. He takes all of his assets and he places them in the care of three slaves. It says that he does so each according to his own ability. So the master has not asked of any of the slaves to do anything beyond their capacity to do it. Each one has been given assets within their level of capacity to fulfill in gaining a profit. So he gives them a portion of money. To one he gives five talents. To another he gives two talents. To another, as you know, he gives one. In our text... There are no specific instructions given. He doesn't say, now, here's exactly what I want you to do with that. In other words, he entrusts his possessions and he expects his stewards, his his slaves, to utilize that money in the most efficient and effective way. And there's a range of things that could have happened because, you remember, he says to the wicked slave, you could have at least put it in the bank. It's safe, safer than hiding it in the ground. It's safe, and it gains some profit. Not as much as it could have been, but some. So he uh, he gives the the stewardship of of this these assets, and he expects his slaves to do what their master would do in gaining a profit. They certainly got the message. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Notice the word immediately is used of the first slave, the five-talent slave, It also says in the same way, the second slave, the two-talent slave did the same. I think it is safe to assume 
that both the five-talent slave, slave and the two-talent slave immediately set to work at putting this money to work and to make a profit for their king. Here's one place where I think you need to read carefully and think about what you're reading. If you read the, the text sort of carelessly, you would come away with the immediate being related to the profit as well as related to the investment. I don't think he's saying that at all. I think he's saying they immediately invested the assets. They didn't immediately get five talents or two talents more. I mean, folks, when you put money in the bank, it takes time, right? And the beauty of this is they understand that there's, there's, there's the asset, there's the work that you're having it do, and there's the time that's spent. So, you know, you're... Your stockbroker or investment person can say, you know, do you want a five-year bond or a two-year bond or a one-year bond? I'll give you 1%, they'll say, if you're lucky. But do you realize that the amount of time that is spent in that investment is directly related to the amount of income. Now, for the wise slaves, that means not knowing how much time there is, they'd better hurry up and get to work with it, Right? I see this text as saying that when the master returns, they then tally up the benefits, the profits of what they've done. And, and so the profits have taken place over this whole period of time, not just early on, over the whole period of time. The investment process starts early. The cashing in process ends with the return of the master. So I think that's kind of important to keep our, our minds wrapped around in terms of this whole immediate thing. We need to get to work quickly. The wicked slave, you know, uh, buries the money and he has a few things to say that are kind of wimpy excuses when the master returns. So let's talk about the wise slaves and their profit. Their profit is proportional to the amount of time that's in, and, and so on where the, the business is done, the investment is played out. Time is a significant factor in all of this as, as it is in our lives. By the way, those who have young children, when do you start a college fund for your kids? As soon as you can, right? Because of time. The more time you have, the greater the return will be on the investment over time. Faithful slaves are dealt with exactly the same way. That is, the master does not distinguish between the five-talent man and the two-talent man because each of them has acted within the full potential of what they were given to do and the, and the ability they had to do it. So a two-talent man receives a well-done, good and faithful slave. Exactly the same words that are said to the five-talent one. The master does not distinguish because they have been faithful to utilize what the master has given them for a profit for him. Twice the space, though, is uh, devoted to the wicked slave. Virtually twice. There's a lot of things here, and it must be that this wicked slave has some things to say to us. That's the way I would take it. So let's talk about the wicked slave's sin as we look at this text. I have to confess, I have a problem. I struggle with this text because as I look at it, I'm trying to figure out in my mind 
what is wrong? <laughs> what is wrong with this guy? Now, it's pretty easy to say when somebody says to our Lord, I mean, the master's pretty veiled thing for Jesus, isn't it? When somebody says of our Lord, you're a hard man. Well, I, you know, I just can't please you. D- does that picture of Jesus, does that fit anything you know? No, he's wrong. He's dead wrong. The question is, what do you do with his statement? I know that you reap where you haven't sown. Is, is that wrong or is that right? My friend Phil pointed out to me the text in Deuteronomy chapter 6 where he says, in effect, to the Israelites, you're going to in, in, inhabit uh, farms and fields and whatever. You didn't plant them. <laughs> They're just there. You get them. You didn't work for them. That would be true. And in that sense, it's grace. It's grace. I'm going to suggest two things for you to think about. And, and you have to get yourself in the mindset of a slave to, to really get the first one. Think about a slave. Uh, here, here is somebody who's totally owned. The slave has not negotiated and said, I'll work for you for $10 an hour. I want to get minimum wage. Hey, there's none of that. Slave doesn't say anything about benefits. He gets whatever the master sovereignly chooses to bestow. That's just simply it. Here's what really gets the slave. And and what I'm saying in all this is, I think when Jesus talks about leaders and leadership, he says, this is the way the Gentiles do it, but this is the way you do it. I think when it comes to slavery, we have the same thing. There is, as it were, an unbeliever's heathen view of slavery, and there is a Christian view of slavery. And I think this slave is an evil, wicked, lazy slave. I don't think he got it right. He could be saying this. You reap where you, and I'm taking the you as personally, where you have not sown. You're sitting there in your hammock drinking your cool one, and I'm out slaving away in the fields. You reap where you haven't sown. I sowed. And so he's saying, what, what should I do? Why should I work for you? I don't get anything out of it. You gain, I don't. It's interesting that Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says to slaves that you ought to be beneficial to your master. And he says, and if they are believers, you ought to work even harder to make them prosper because you're prospering those who are part of the kingdom of God. You ought to rejoice that your labor makes him prosper. That's the Christian mindset. By the way, roll it back a ways to Joseph. Joseph's mindset was how to make Pharaoh prosper, and he did. Daniel's mindset was to make the king, and there were several of them, prosper. He thought well of them. He worked hard for them. He worked for their benefit, in a sense, at his expense. That's the Christian view of slavery. It is possible that this slave is simply saying, I'm tired of working for nothing. If you want to get some harvest, why don't you get out here in the field and do something? It's possible. In fact, it may even be likely. Combine it with this. He's also saying, I think, you're sovereign. I mean, how many people can actually reap where they haven't sown? 
God can. God can do that. God can produce something without breaking a sweat. It may well be that what he's saying is, you're sovereign, God. You don't have to have somebody out here in the fields slaving away. You could just call it into existence. So why should I go out and break my back doing for you what you could do for yourself without any of this labor of mine? Now, lest you you think that's far away and remote, think about the mentality of the working force in America today. The working force in America today is tempted to say, I resent the fact that this business makes a profit. I demand that those profits go into my pocket because I worked hard for this. There is that kind of mentality. By the way, Paul also talks to slaves about pilfering. And he says, don't pilfer. But what you're really saying is, my master is not paying me enough, so I deserve something, so I'll just help myself to one of these things. Happens in business today. And because I need something with a P, I call this one piddling around. One of the things that people will do when they resent the profit of their master, their boss, their company is to just mess around. They don't feel the urgency to work hard, to be diligent. So they can send emails to one another and funny jokes and whatever. And trust me, I, I say they. I've been down that trail. Uh, you, can, you can do all these things, look at Internet sites, all of these things. But the question is, is that making a profit, so to speak, for your master? I fear not. So we need to be careful when we look at the uh, at the wicked slave. Let's not look down our judgmental nose too quickly because it may well be that we're doing the same thing. Oh, the spiritual version. I've left that one out. Do you remember who was it that was going, was it to India? And, and the mission board said, Brother, if God wants to save the heathen, he can do it without your work or mine. Sovereignty. Sovereignty becomes the excuse for not working. And frankly, those of us who are Calvinists, who believe in sovereignty, we're tempted sometimes to do precisely that. Well, let God do it. And that means I can sit around and twiddle my thumbs. Okay, so our Lord's assessment of this guy is he is wicked and he is lazy. And, as you notice, he is consigned to eternal torment. Okay, now I really wanted to give myself just this much time for the conclusion and the application. What is this text saying to us? There are a lot of things. And I'd like you, rather than to try, if you happen to be writing anything down, I want you only to write down categories of here are things I want to think about. What I wish you would do is read through 24 and 25 once a day and ask yourself these critical questions. The first one, I got thanks to A.W. Tozier. A.W. Tozier says, evangelicals have a great theoretical and theological knowledge of the second coming, but they really don't have a passion to see the Lord Jesus. Think about that. We may know intellectually that the Lord's returning and we may study prophecy and go through all those things, 
But how much of all of that, how much of that prophetic stuff is really about, I can't wait to see him? I think that's worthwhile. And he presses it now a little bit. And he says, here's why I think that's true. One, we have too much emphasis on the gift and too little on the giver. We're thinking about Christianity in terms of the benefits package rather than the beneficiary, the, the one who is the benefactor, who is bestowing those blessings. That ought to be huge to us. He says, secondly, we're too comfortable in the world. <laughs> you know, it's hard. It's hard to want heaven. When I was a 15-year-old kid, I wanted Jesus to wait till I was 16 and a half so I could race around town driving legally. It's, it's hard to want Jesus to come back when you're having too much fun doing what you're doing in his absence. I think there's something to think about there. And related to that is maybe there's not enough suffering going on. Have you ever found that that's true for people? Maybe somebody who has a really serious illness and, and they're hurting badly. You know, heaven gets really sweet. You really start looking forward to it. Think about the saints today who may actually have their heads cut off because of their faith in the Lord Jesus. Do you think they're eager about the second coming of our Lord Jesus? I would guess they're far more eager than you or I. And that's where the whole tribulation issue comes along. When the hard times come, boy, our appetite is going to be peaked, is it not? Oh, then we're going to be saving. Even so, come Lord Jesus. When the suffering level goes up, the expectation level goes up with it. Well, all of that thanks to uh, our friend A.W. Tozier. But let me say this in an add-on to the last three weeks. What does this say about the prosperity gospel, friends? How does the prosperity gospel incite you and I to look eagerly for the coming of our Lord Jesus. I would say to you, the prosperity gospel is lethal in terms of this text. Okay, here's another one. I'm going to poke you a little bit on this one. For those who are pre-trib, believe that the rapture is coming before the tribulation, for those who hold to that, the risk is that when you believe in the imminent return of our Lord Jesus, you are very tempted to ignore the emphasis of Matthew 24, which says it's going to be a while. Now, all I'm trying to say to you is not not abandon this altogether, but I'm saying that there, there are two bookends to this. Jesus could come very quickly. But the reality is, Jesus has said there may very well, and we know there's been a 2,000-year wait, there may be a delay. Sometimes by emphasizing the quickness factor, we actually steal from the endurance factor in the delay part. We need to think about that. We really need to think about, is my view of the nearness of his return overshadowing my grasp of the possibility of his delay. I think about the book of Jeremiah in this regard. 
Remember Jeremiah saying you're going to go off into captivity, into Babylon, it's going to be 70 years. And <laughs> the false prophets, first of all, said, oh, it isn't going to happen at all, right? And then after the thing starts to fall apart, they say, well, it won't be long. Yeah, you know, just keep your, keep your apartment rental going and whatever because you're going to be back really soon. See, the way in which we conduct ourselves in those periods of delay, 70 years for Israel at this point, is based upon how long we think it's going to take. We need to have a longer view, I think, uh, even while we wait for the Lord Jesus. All right, here's another one. The relationship between waiting and working. The danger is that we see waiting and working as as contrasting one another, and especially in the area of faith. I've heard it said, I've said it myself, well, sometimes faith works, and sometimes faith waits. So we see Abraham, right? And we, <laughs> as, as Abraham's on this scheme to have a child by way of Hagar, you know, you're saying to him, wait, wait, don't work, wait. And there are other times when you want to say, come on, get going. Sometimes waiting and working are contrasted. In this text, they're not. Working is the appropriate action while you wait. That's what Jesus is saying. All right, one more little poke. Retirement. What do you think our view today in America of retirement says to all of this? See, I think that there's this mentality that I've worked all my life and now I get the hammock and the cool one. That's just never in the Bible. In fact, I would say to you that retirement is God's provision for you to be more aggressive in ministry and activity for Him than you may have been at other points in your life. This text says to us, we better get off our duff when it comes to the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And retirement is not going to be an excuse. I would not... I would not recommend standing at the feet of Jesus and saying, I'm retired. I wouldn't recommend it. Here's another one. Wrongly interpreting delay. The danger with delay is that some are going to twist that, as you see in Second Peter chapter 3. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the beginning of time, you know, nothing's happened, nothing's changed. So we might as well go out, eat, drink, and be merry, and beat on fellow slaves and whatever. No, that's not really the case at all. We need to be diligent, and delay is the signal that it's time to go to work, not that it's the signal for slacking off of our work for the kingdom. The waiting period, the delay period, is the time to make a profit for the master. So the real question is this. What does that look like? If you were to have a a, a personal profit and loss evaluation form, you know, sort of like an accountant does, I don't understand any of that stuff, but if if somebody, you know, we get Don Grimm to lay out one of these, or Stephen, to lay one of these things out, what would profit look like here? And what would loss look like here? And we ought to do some accounting, don't you think? We ought to do some accounting, really, even every day. The end of the day, say, 
What were the profitable things that were done today for the kingdom? And what were the unprofitable things? When we start the day, we ought to ask ourselves, what are those activities which are profit centers? What are those activities that aren't? And the profit centers ought to go up in our priorities. We really ought to get that right. And you know the problem? (laughs) I hate the term nonprofit because I think that a lot of nonprofits are unprofitable. And they have that mindset. You know, we're not here to, and they, they would say, make money. But, but in a sense, I think we could fall into the trap of saying, we're not here to make a profit. Well, we are. And the question would be, if God did the accounting, how many of our nonprofits would go bankrupt? Because they're not producing a profit for the kingdom. Now, those prophets look differently, I grant you. One of them is going to be evangelism, isn't it? When Luke 16, you know, that we are to use our money wisely to, to make friends for the kingdom. The angels rejoice in heaven <laughs> at the sound of one believer coming to faith. That's profit. The edification of believers is profit. The glorification of Jesus Christ and the worship of him is profit. The manifestation of his character and his life in the world is profit. But we really need to have those things clear in our minds. What are the profit centers for our church? What are the profit centers for us individually? What's God given you to do that ought to make a profit? One last thing. We are slaves, but we're also sons. Isn't that the beauty of it? Yes, we're slaves. But remember John 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you slaves. I call you sons. And we inherit, we enter into. That's what he's saying. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. What's the joy of the master? I think it's all of those things that are his delight that we will experience in full in heaven. Those are wonderful things for sons. So let's not always be thinking like slaves, though we should. Let's also think like sons. I said one more thing. I have to say this. If this text tells us anything, it says to us that not everybody is going there. You just can't read this text without saying, some are going and some aren't. And what he's doing is giving us some of the earmarks that ought to characterize those who are true believers. But the bottom line is, what have we done with the Lord Jesus Christ? What have we done with him? He has made the provision to pay for our sins. He has done everything that is essential for us to have life and godliness. And as Christians, he has given us a job to do. But our job, if we are not inside the fold, is simply to trust in his son. Don't don't read this text wrongly. This text is not about working harder so you can be sure you get to heaven. This text is for Christians who ought to work harder because they're going to heaven. And I hope you're on that train. Father, thank you for this text. Help us to think seriously about these words that come from our dear Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.